we turn for our reading from the Word of God to the Old Testament, we turn uh, this evening to Exodus chapter 3, and we begin reading at verse number 7. The Lord is meeting with Moses at the burning bush, and the Lord has revealed his presence to Moses. Moses hides his face. He's afraid to look at God, rightly so, uh, in verse 6. In verse 7 of Exodus 3, we read, The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I'm concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now, go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you. And this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Moses said to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, What is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name by which I am to be remembered from generation to generation. Go, assemble the elders of Israel and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, appeared to me and said, I have watched over you and have seen what has been done to you in Egypt. And I have promised to bring you up out of your misery in Egypt into the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. The elders of Israel will listen to you. Then you and the elders are to go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. Let us take a three-day journey into the desert to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand compels him. So I will stretch out my hand and strike the Egyptians with all the wonders that I will perform among them. After that, he will let you go. And I will make the Egyptians favorably disposed towards this people, so that when you leave, you will not go empty-handed. Every woman is to ask her neighbor, any woman living in her house, for articles of silver and gold and for clothing, which you will put on your sons and daughters, and so you will plunder the Egyptians. If you're confronted with a task that just seems too big for you to cope with. You don't know how you would ever be able 
tackle it. What's your first response? It might well be to make excuses. Now, they may well contain perfectly legitimate questions. What about this? What about this? Things you need to know. Genuine objections and problems that you know need to be dealt with. But sometimes the real issue is that we simply don't want to do the job or we don't think that we can fulfill the task. And so we try to find ways out of it. And that maybe becomes evident when there's a question raised and it's answered and there's another question takes its place. And if it's answered, there's another and it becomes clear after a while really that these are excuses. They're not genuine objections and problems. And we see a good example of that response in Moses here in the record that we're looking at in Exodus chapter 3. And so this evening we're looking to the remainder of Exodus 3 verses 11 to 22. Commissioned by the Lord. Commissioned by the Lord. God has uh, said to Moses, verse 10, I'm sending you to Pharaoh. And now we see, how did Moses respond to that? And how did God deal with Moses? As he's suddenly told, he is being sent back to Egypt after 40 years. And remember, Moses at this point uh, is a man of 80, commissioned by the Lord. First of all, we see in the record here the promise. The promise. Well, Moses' first response to the Lord's commission, verse 11, who am I? Who am I to be given this work to go down to Pharaoh in Egypt and bring the Israelites out? Who am I? It sounds very different from the 40-year-old Moses uh, that we saw back in chapter 2. The Moses who rushed in, rushed ahead of God, who struck down the Egyptian without any commission from God. Brash, hasty, self-confident. When you read uh, the account of Israel's history that's given by Stephen in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 7, just before Stephen is executed, Stephen says Moses expected the Israelites to realize he was going to deliver them, and they didn't. Of course they didn't. And it wasn't God's time. So Moses at 80 is very different, of course. We'd expect that. And that change is good and necessary. The brashness and the self-confidence have gone. But then we listen to Moses discussing this, I'd say debating this, with God. And persistently what you see is Moses offering excuses. Oh, some of the, the points he raises and the questions he asks are valid. Some of these are things that Moses knows he's going to have to deal with if he returns to Egypt. But not everything Moses said is wrong. But it becomes apparent that in the end these are excuses. They're a cover for 
what finally becomes apparent in chapter 4 and verse 13. Please send someone else. But ultimately, Moses doesn't want to do it. He doesn't want to go back now to Egypt and lead out the Israelites. And so, one by one, he offers excuses. So he's lost confidence in himself uh, in a, a healthy way. He needed to lose that. The problem is that the loss of confidence in what he could do himself hasn't been replaced by confidence in the Lord. And that is what ought to have taken place. As Moses realized, you know, I can't rush ahead of God. I can't do this by myself. He ought also to have realized, but if this is God's work, he can do it. But he doesn't, at this point, have that confidence in the Lord. So how will God deal with Moses' excuses? We might expect, if we accept the caricatures of the Old Testament God, the one who's quick to wrath, the one who strikes anybody down with the slightest excuse, if we accepted that caricature of God, we might expect that he'll respond to Moses' excuses with with rebuke, with strong words, with with wrath. Moses will be in terrible trouble because really he's arguing with God. And yet the Lord's reply is very different. I will be with you. It's a promise. The Lord is dealing very gently and very graciously with Moses. The Lord could have been wrathful, but he's gentle. I will be with you. Promise an assurance of the Lord's presence with Moses. And not only his presence, if God is with Moses, he's not going to be standing by idly doing nothing. It's also an assurance of the Lord's enabling for Moses to do the work that God is giving him. I will be with you as an assurance of God's presence and God's enabling. So it's a promise. It's an assurance to Moses. God even gives a sign, a guarantee that the mission on which Moses will set out is going to succeed. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you, that's you plural, all of you will worship God on this mountain. There's no possibility of failure. God gives his word to Moses. Promise of his presence, his enabling. There's no doubt about it. And in doing the Lord's work, It's true for all of us, not just for a Moses called to a great work and to lead a nation, but in whatever work the Lord assigns each of us, especially in the work of mission and in gospel work, but in everything we are doing. If we're doing God's work faithfully, we have his promise. Matthew 28, 20 where the Savior says, I am with you always. It's not just with a Moses 
doing the kind of work to which Moses was called, it's with all of the people of God. We do God's work faithfully. I am with you always, Christ promises. As as it was for Moses, it's a promise of his presence and his enabling. He'll not simply be there and do nothing, standing idly by. He'll be enabling us to do the work, especially the work of gospel witness. That's the main context there in Matthew 28. Unlike Moses, for us a realization of our own inadequacy, our own insufficiency, ought to encourage us to focus on the Lord's adequacy. It's not by our strength, not by our wisdom, but it'll be by God's strength and God's wisdom. And the Lord is gently leading Moses on to an understanding of that. The promise, I will be with you, gracious and gentle. As often he would say to us, as we perhaps face tasks we don't think that we can cope with, if they're the Lord's work, he says, I am with you always. The promise. But then secondly, as we listen to Moses and the Lord, and of course particularly to the Lord, we think of the name. The name. Moses' first objection has been dealt with, who am I? And God says, I'm with you. So that has been dealt with. Moses' next objection envisages the reaction of the Israelites. Go back down to Egypt. He's been away for 40 years. Uh, He can remember what happened 40 years before when he made an effort, misguided, but it was an effort to deliver the Israelites And what did he get? Well, skepticism, rejection, and Moses envisages, when I go down, I say, God has sent me. What are they going to ask? Well, they're going to ask, what's his name? Okay, you say God sent you. Well, what's his name? Here they were in a situation of pluralism in Egypt. Some of the Israelites were worshiping Egyptian gods horrendously. And Moses knows. They'll say, well, What's his name? Okay, prove. Prove that God has sent you. Tell us his name. And hence Moses' question, what shall I tell them? What am I going to say when I'm asked the inevitable question? And so God still graciously, gently gives Moses the name that he is to use. Now, we know, we've said it often, of course, names in Scripture are not just labels. They are given for a reason. They may be given because of what parents hope the child will become or the circumstances of its birth, like Samuel asked of God and so forth. Names are important for their meaning. Now, if that is true on the human level, How much more is it the case with the names of God? Because the names of God in Scripture are not names that people have made up or devised for him. 
as the nations, Egyptians or the Babylonians or whoever, thought up names for their gods. The names of the true and living God are the names he has chosen. And they tell us what we need to know about him. They're descriptions of God by God. And so they're profoundly significant. So what of the name that God reveals here to Moses? Hard to be sure if this was a name that the Israelites had never heard before or had not yet understood the significance of it. doesn't really matter. This is the name that Moses is to use when he goes back down to Egypt. Lord's response, he gives the name, I am. I am who I am. Verse 14. What are we to make of that? It seems a very odd name. But it mildly, I am who I am. Or you could also translate it, Hebrew being the sort of language it is, I will be who I will be. That still doesn't take us very far, does it? What's the meaning of the name that God here reveals? Well, there are many things we could say about it. But in particular, first and foremost, I am who I am is the God who really exists. In contrast to the empty idols down in Egypt or anywhere else for that matter, but Egypt particularly, of course, is in view. Dead idols. This is the living God. I am who I am. And the gods of Egypt, Ra, Osiris, Anubis, or whoever else it was, they are not. They're nothing. This is the true God. I am who I am. Not only that he exists, but also that he is what we call self-existent. What's that mean? It simply means this is a God who depends on no one and nothing else. As human beings, we all depend on all kinds of people and things to keep us alive and healthy and so on. Even the very origins of our life on earth from our parents, we are dependent. That's part of being human. Here's a God who depends on nobody and nothing. He has not been born of any other deity. His origins are not from some other source. He simply is self-existent, needing no one, nothing, utterly independent of the entire creation. He existed before there was even light, never mind a world or a universe. Self-existent, utterly independent. He's the one who exists eternally. I am who I am. I will be who I will be. Always in existence. No beginning, no end. That's the kind of God he is. And the God who never changes, that's also part of of this name. I am who I am. And I will always be the same God. 
immutable, unchanging. What God is today, he'll be tomorrow and the next and the next. We're not waking up someday and discover he's a different God. Always the same. No change in his being or his perfections or his purposes or his promises. It is a very rich name that the Lord gives here to Moses. I am. A name that was so holy in the view of the Jewish people that they wouldn't pronounce it. And eventually they forgot how it was pronounced. When they were reading the scriptures, instead of pronouncing this name, they, they would put in another word. And they forgot how this is pronounced. Indeed, if you read sometimes modern Jewish translations of the Old Testament, they have here the name. That's it. That's all they will put in. So they forgot how it was pronounced. Probably it was pronounced something like Yahweh. It does that seem strange. And we wouldn't put it in our translations. It would sound so odd to us. But usually you find it in your Bible as the Lord in block capital letters. That is this special name. You're reading your Bible and you see the Lord in capitals. It's this special name with all the, the, the riches that we have thought about. The eternal one, the living God, the immutable God, and so forth. It's the name that has sometimes come into English as Jehovah. Uh, now, there was no such word, actually, as Jehovah. We didn't get into all the reasons how we ended up with it, but to many Christians, it's, it is a special name, Jehovah. They're so used to it, but it actually was never pronounced like that, and it's a, a, bit, of a, uh, a bit of a misrepresentation, almost, of God's name. But we're used to it, we're accustomed to it, and uh, no doubt we can continue to use it. But it's this special name, the Lord, this God tells Moses, it's what you're to tell the Israelites. A name that's full of encouragement. You think of the different things we've mentioned that are contained in this name. The living God. Uh, the God who never changes. The God who is eternal. The God who depends on no one. All of that is full of encouragement for the Lord's people. And Moses goes down and he gives them this name. And those are some of the things that the Israelites are being told about God. Full of encouragement. That's a name that's bound up closely with the covenant. I've probably mentioned covenant uh, in every sermon in Genesis and now in Exodus, but you can't get away from it. It's always there. God's commitment to his people. The God of your fathers. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is a God of love and of grace. The love and the grace that Israel are going to experience when the Lord leads them out of Egypt. Love and grace. God who is a deliverer. I am who I am is a delivering God, a God of salvation, a God who ultimately delivers 
in and through Messiah Jesus. The Exodus is a picture. It's a historical event. We're not for a moment denying that, but it is also a picture of God delivering a helpless people and taking them to be his own in covenant. And ultimately God does that in Christ. In him, Paul writes in Ephesians 2, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. That is the God who names himself, I am who I am. A God of salvation, a God of deliverance, and a God of gracious covenant. The name. The name that the Lord chooses for himself. So the Lord is answering Moses' objection with the promise, with the name. But of course, there's much still to come. What is Moses going to tell these Israelites? He goes down, he says, I am has sent me. Then what? What comes next? And the message, thirdly then, Moses has given a mandate. Go assemble the elders of Israel, verse 16. And Moses is given a very precise message to pass on to the Israelites. He's not going down to give them his own ideas and his own insights. Here is a message from the Lord. The Lord, the God of your fathers, appeared. Here is the God of covenant. Here is the God of promise. And he is working on Israel's behalf. Remember, these are people in slavery. These are people who are suffering and oppressed. And Moses has given the message, God is working. He is not idle. He is going to do something wonderful for you. This is the God who's committed to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. And he hasn't forgotten his promises. He hasn't forgotten the covenant. He is now going to work. Now, Israel needed to be reassured of that. It was over 400 years since Jacob and the family had gone down to Egypt. It wasn't yesterday or last week. 400 years. And now God says, I am going to keep my promise and my word to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and now to you. This is the sovereign God who's going to fulfill his plan. And so Israel can rely on this God about whom Moses is speaking, the great I am. They can rely on him. His plan and his covenant can't fail. And this is the assurance the Lord gives Israel. Verse 16, I have watched over you. And often they must have wondered, does God know what we are going through? Has God forgotten us? I have watched over you. And the word that the Lord uses there has the sense of I'm coming to your aid 
to do something about your plight and your trouble. It's not simply God watches them and he knows what's happening and he does nothing. The Lord who's watched over them is going to act graciously and powerfully to deliver them. God watches over his people with loving care. He always does. And he's going to deal with the forces that oppress his people. They do not need to feel overlooked or forgotten. We find it, Psalm 33, verse 18. We'll be singing it later. The eyes of the Lord are on those who fear him. And that's what Moses is to tell Israel. The eyes of the Lord are on you. You're not forgotten. You're not overlooked. God is going to act. He knows what is wrong. He knows what you're suffering. He knows the hardships. And now he is going to deal with them. In particular, verse 17, he's going to bring them up out of their misery. This is good news of a God who is going to deliver them. God who will put an end to their oppression and their suffering. A God who's going to keep that promise he made to Abraham. What was it? 500 years before? And now it's his time. And God is coming and he's going to act. And he sent Moses to tell the Israelites The Lord is going to deal with your burdens and your oppression and your suffering. And he's going to bring you into the land that he promised. He promised to Abraham way back in Genesis 12. And then again and again to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. I'm going to give you the land. I'm going to give you Canaan. And so the Lord specifies, I'm going to take you there. The land of the Canaanites and the Hittites and all of these different tribes. I'm going to take you there. The time has come. The promise that has been made is going to be kept. Because God never fails to keep his promises. And so he's going to bestow rich blessings on these Israelites. They don't deserve it. They can't earn it. It's God's love. It's God's grace to undeserving people, but it's going to be rich, a land flowing with milk and honey. It's first mentioned in the early part of this chapter, become proverbial, flowing with milk and honey. That's what God provides. He provides richly for his people, not a little, not a few drops of blessing and favor, but rich. And again, it's a picture It's a a foreshadowing of greater things to come, of what we have in Christ, the Deliverer, the Savior, the blessings of salvation, the inheritance that Peter writes about in 1 Peter 1. Canaan, the promised land, is just a little foreshadowing of what God's people have in Christ. That's the significance of the land. And you've misunderstood the land in the Old Testament if you don't see that. 
It's a token and a foreshadowing of all the riches of salvation. That will include not just a little piece of territory in Israel. That will include the whole of a new creation where God's people will live forever. All that will be ours in the Messiah, the Deliverer. God will keep his promises. Not one of them will fail. The promise, the name, the message, and finally the deliverance. The deliverance. Moses has been given great reassurance. And now he's told, the elders will listen to you. That must have encouraged him. Forty years before, they didn't want to hear. The elders will listen to you. And then Moses is to go with the elders to confront Pharaoh. Now, there are some who speculate that maybe the elders didn't actually go with him. They're never mentioned when Moses and Aaron go to face Pharaoh. Where are the elders? Maybe they were there. They're never mentioned Maybe they weren't just so keen to go and face Pharaoh, but they're meant to. We need to understand what's happening when Moses and the elders go into the palace and they stand in front of Pharaoh. What's happening? It's a confrontation. And what is at the heart of this confrontation? It's this. Who rules Egypt? Who rules Egypt? That is the question when Moses and Aaron stand in front of Pharaoh and bring God's message. Who rules Egypt? Is it God or is it Pharaoh? That's the question that's going to be answered in the next chapters of this book. Who rules Egypt? The initial request is for a three-day journey into the wilderness. And that's going to be refused. And God tells Moses, Pharaoh is going to refuse. Pharaoh will only respond, as the Lord says in verse 19, to a mighty hand. He's going to have to be taken, as it were, by the scruff of his neck and compelled to let the Israelites go. Nothing else will do in the end. And God says, I will stretch out my hand and strike. Verse 20. That is how the confrontation is going to be resolved. Who rules Egypt? And there's only one answer. It's the Lord. The I am. It's not Pharaoh sitting on the throne. He doesn't rule Egypt. He thinks he does. And you see, in Egyptian thinking, Pharaoh was a god. He was a descendant of the gods. Pharaoh was to be worshipped. So here is a god on the throne in Egypt, Pharaoh, and here is the god of the Hebrews who rules Egypt. And Pharaoh's going to learn the hard way that it's the Lord who rules and who fulfills his purpose. Only the Lord. He will act 
He will perform wonders. And we'll see some of them as we come to look at the plagues of Egypt. One of the significant things about the plagues is each of them was targeting one of the gods of Egypt. The Nile is a god. Okay, we'll turn it to blood. No problem. And each plague exposes the powerlessness of the gods of Egypt, Pharaoh included. This is a confrontation. Here are two kingdoms essentially at war, the kingdom of Satan, exemplified in godless Pharaoh and the kingdom of the Lord. Who will win? Well, we know who will win. There ultimately is no contest. And who rules Egypt? It's actually the Lord. And the Lord simply states what he's going to do. There's going to be no struggle. I will make the Egyptians favorable. The Egyptians will be loading down the Israelites with possessions, with clothing, with all sorts of things. Why? It's not because they like the Israelites. It's because God moves. And it is a promise. It's a statement of fact. I will make the Egyptians deliverance from the hand of God. And we see here surely one of the great examples of a profound biblical truth that salvation, deliverance, are God's work. And that is always the case. And we see it finally and perfectly in the saving work of the Messiah, the Lord Jesus. Sovereign deliverance of sinners like you and me. People helpless in their sin. Held in Satan's bondage. But God reigns. And God delivers. And we've experienced that if we're Christians tonight. We've experienced this God of salvation, of deliverance. A promise-keeping God who fulfills his plan and purpose. As Jonah learned after some hard experiences, Jonah 2.9, salvation comes from the Lord. That was true for the Israelites. That's true for every saved sinner. It's from the Lord. And all the glory is his. The deliverance. Who rules Egypt? It's the Lord. And he keeps his promises. He fulfills his word. And he delivers his people. This is our God. He hasn't changed. I am who I am. He still is. And he's the God who has saved us. And will keep us. And will fulfill all the promises that he's made us in Christ. The wonders of the promised land, the new heaven and the new earth are still ahead of us. And he'll bring us safely there.